We are concluding our series entitled God's Playlist, our summertime series on the book of Psalms. It's been a, a good time, a challenging time for those of us who stood up here to communicate God's word, but we'll return back to it. We went through nine Psalms this summer, and so we certainly did not exhaust God's playlist in this series, and so we'll, we'll return to it another time. I was thinking over the last couple of weeks that as I was listening to the radio and listening to some old songs on my Spotify, that I was thinking that the best songs are written by the brokenhearted, it seems. And I was thinking about songs like Desperado from the Eagles, uh, an old classic song. It's got to be written by a brokenhearted person. And then something more recent is Adele's song, Hello, about a lost, it's about a lost dog, right? Uh, no, okay, it's, a, it's about uh, lost love, a distant love. But I thought one of the songs that is sung in the church, written by someone who is brokenhearted, for years and years we have um, stood up and sung out the hymn, It Is Well With My Soul, by Horatio Spafford. Horatio Spafford was a Chicago lawyer with a thriving legal practice. He had a, a beautiful home and a wonderful wife and four daughters and a son, and he was a follower of Jesus Christ. At the very height of his financial and professional success, Horatio and his wife, Anna, suffered a tragic loss of their son, and shortly thereafter, on, on October 8, 1871, a great, the Great Chicago Fire destroyed almost every real estate investment that Spafford had. In 1873, Spafford scheduled a boat trip to Europe in order to give his wife and his daughters a much-needed vacation and a time to recover from all of the tragedy. And Spafford sent his, son, his, his wife and his daughters on ahead of him in a boat because he had to take care of some last-minute last uh, business in Chicago. And several days later, he received notice that his family's ship, the one that his wife and his four daughters were on, had collided with another ship in the Atlantic Ocean, and four of his daughters drowned. Only his wife survived. And so with a heavy heart, Spafford boarded a boat that would take him to his grieving wife, Anna, in England. And it was on this ship, as they were sailing across the Atlantic, he penned the famous words, When sorrow like sea billows roll, it is well, it is well with my soul. And for more than a century, thousands, more than a century, this tragic story of one man has given hope to thousands who have lifted their voices to sing, It is well with my soul. When peace like a river attendeth my way, when sorrows like sea billows roll. Whatever my lot, thou hast taught me to say, it is well, it is well with my soul. There's a lot of heartache in the world. 
Some of you are mourning the loss of, of loved ones. Some of you have serious and chronic illness. Some of you are experiencing relational conflict and perhaps relational betrayal. And some are working and dealing with financial ruin. And, and most likely, these things will eventually make their way into your life if you haven't had them before. You just, it just seems like you just can't stop the hardships from coming sometimes. And sometimes when heartache happens, people become angry. And, well, of course, you're going to become angry if hardship like that happens. And, and you've got to work through that. But then some people let that anger fester and, and sit, and it, they become bitter. Others get in conflict because of the, 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 the hardship and the troubles that they're facing. And, and others, they feel betrayed by God himself. And the question comes up often, and people come and they call me, they send me emails, they, they say, can we meet with you? I just, we just want to talk because our question is, if God is good and if, if he's loving, why is there so much pain in the world? Why is there so much pain in my own life right now? So how do you live in a world like this and have peace and have confidence? Well, I think Psalm 91 helps us. I hope it'll help us to answer this question today. Psalm 91, let me read to you 16 verses of this psalm. Verse 1, whoever dwells in the shelter of the Most High will rest in the shadow of the Almighty. I will say of the Lord, he is my refuge and my fortress, my God in whom I trust. Surely he will save you from the fowler's snare and from the deadly pestilence. He will cover you with his feathers, and under his wings you will find refuge. His faithfulness will be your shield and rampart. You will not fear the terror of the night, nor the arrow that flies by day, nor the pestilence that stalks in the darkness, nor the plague that destroys at midday. A thousand may fall at your side, ten thousand at your right hand, but it will not come near you. You will only observe with your eyes and see the punishment of the wicked. If you say, the Lord is my refuge, and you make the most high your dwelling, no harm will overtake you, no disaster will come near your tent, for he will command his angels concerning you to guard you in all your ways. They will lift you up in their hands so that you will not strike your foot against a stone. You will tread on the lion and the cobra. You will trample the great lion and the serpent. Because he loves me, says the Lord, I will rescue him. I will protect him, for he acknowledges my name. He will call on me, and I will answer him. I will be with him in trouble. I will deliver him and honor him. With a long life, I will satisfy him and show him my salvation. This is God's word for us today. There are three sections of this song that help us to appreciate Psalm 91. The, the first section is a, a clear promise of, of peace. There's a promise of peace in the first section. And then the second section is, is, is to understand the promise. You have to, we're going to take a look at the context of this psalm in, in Old Testament passages and New Testament uh, scriptures. We'll, we'll look at a context of this promise. And then the last part of that psalm, God is speaking directly to us 
And through that, we'll get some clarity so that we can know how we can live out and apply this promise to our lives. And so let's take a look at this psalm in those three sections. The question we'll ask today is, does God really protect me? Does he really protect me? And the first section here is the promise of peace. It's found in verses 1 through 4. And in verses 1 through 4, we can see this truth. You can see it for yourself that God is, and if you look there, he's a shelter, and he's a shade or a shadow here, uh, a refuge. Verses 1 through 4 speak to God as being a fortress, and then he's a bird with protective wings. And there's this image after image after image in the first four verses that's just singing out to us. It's just, God, it's, it's, the psalmist writes this to us. It's a, it's a song. He says, God will protect you. But the most vivid image here, from, from my viewpoint, is that God has these wings, wings of protection. There's feathers involved here. And, and th- this is a metaphor that's often used in the scriptures. It's a, 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 a metaphor of a mother bird caring for her young by spreading her wings over them. And this conveys to us protection and strength and tenderness to us. And we find this in, in a lot of different scriptures. In, in the Old Testament, in the book of Ruth, Boaz says to Ruth, a man named Boaz says to a, a young Ruth because he sees how she has cared for her mother-in-law. And, and, he write, and it's written in, in Luke chapter 2, verse, I mean, Ruth chapter 2, verse 12, may the Lord repay you for what you have done, Ruth. May you, richly, may you be richly rewarded by the Lord, the God of Israel, under whose wings you have come to take refuge. And so there it is. There it is again. We see in, in the 36th Psalm, verse 7, how priceless is your unfailing love, O God. People take refuge in the shadow of your wings. And in Psalm 57, we read the same. In Psalm 61, it's the same. And over and over and over again, in the Scriptures, God is likened to a mother bird who protects her young with outstretched wings. In the Bible, the metaphors of God are mostly masculine. God is king and God is father. And some scholars, some theologians conclude that one of the reasons that God is occasionally likened to a mother bird in the scriptures, it's it's to convey that God is tender and loving rather than God being remote and distant which some human fathers sometimes tend to be. Interesting thought that some scholars have here. But I want to draw your attention here to Psalm 91, verse 2, because there's uh, an important phrase here in verse 2. It, it says, I will say of the Lord, He is my refuge and my fortress, my God. And so you have your Bibles there. If, if you're taking notes, uh, write those words down or underline those, those two words, because my God is covenant language. It's language of a special covenant that God has with his people. We find this in Jeremiah chapter 31 and verse 33. He says, I will be, uh, I, I will be their God and they will be my people. That's covenant language. It's a special relationship. And this means if you trust God, if you've given your life to God, you have entered into this covenant relationship with him. And the promise is that he'll protect you. And so when I read these first four verses in this song and I read it, I I think to myself, 
You trust God, and that equals he will protect you. I think you would get that too. I mean, if you, if you read these four verses, you trust God, I trust God, he will protect me. It's this covenant relationship that we have with him. It's the promise of peace. So does God really, does he really protect me? Well, the first is this promise of peace, and we see that. The second is, let's take a look at a wider context of what this promise is about. Because what does this covenant language stuff really mean? I mean, what does it mean if we trust God and that he will protect us? Because if I look back on my life, and I think if you would look honestly at your life, I think that there, has been, there have been times in my life that I've trusted God, and I have felt like he hasn't protected me from some hardship. And maybe you've experienced that yourself. Verses 5 through 13 describes God's protection. And the statements that the songwriter makes here are astounding. Take a look at this. It, 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 someone could take these verses 5 through 13 to mean that if you trust God, you, will, you won't experience violence. Take a look at verse 5. It says, You will not fear the terror of the night, and nor the arrow that flies by day. Verse 7 says, A thousand may fall at your side, ten thousand at your right hand, but it will not come near you. So I take this to mean you won't experience this violence. If you look at verse 6, it it appears that we don't experience disease. Verse 6 says, Nor the pestilence that stalks in the darkness, nor the plague that destroys at midday. And then I see that we won't experience any harm or disaster. In verse 10, it says, no harm will overtake you, nor disaster will come near your tent, your house. And then I think it's, I think it's kind of fun, but in verse 12, it, you won't experience the stubbing of your toe. Take a look at this. If, they, the angels will lift you up in their hands so that you will not strike your foot against a stone. And so it, I, I think it's, it's pretty, it's, it's interesting in verses 5 through 13 as we read this song that all of these things won't happen if you have this, this trust in God. Could it be that if you trust God, nothing bad will ever happen to you? Could that be? Will your life go smoothly if you trust in God? Because also the opposite would be true, I think. You know, the opposite would be true if your life is not going smoothly if you are experiencing harm and sickness, and if bad things are happening to you, then the opposite is true. You don't trust God. Not, we're in a pickle right here, aren't we? I mean, we're, we're, we're... Is this how we understand this? Is this what this song is saying? Now, let me, let's bring this into context, and we're going to look at some scriptures, and we're going to have some understanding here, because, first of all, truth be told... If I was very honest, I desperately want this to be true in my life. Because I don't like bad things happening to me. So I desperately want this true to my life. If you, I, I haven't quite experienced this, though. I've had some hardships. I've had some, some loss in my life. I have been and my family has been affected by illness and disease. But I want this to be true with all my heart. So I want to read it this way. But that's not been my experience. The second thing I would see is this. 
I know that in the Scriptures, it doesn't quite go the way that I'm reading here in Psalm 91. Because we have the book of Job as our example in, in the Bible, amongst other, other stories. In the book of Job, Job experiences disaster. Not what Psalm 91 speaks about it. He experiences violence. He experiences harm and disease. Um, and along come some guys in Job's life. They're called Job's friends, right? And Job's friends tell Job, Hey, Job, if you trust in God, bad things won't happen to you, Job. And so, Job, we see that bad things are happening to you. Therefore, you must not be trusting in God. These are Job's friends, okay? And at the end of the story, God shows up in this storm, in this whirlwind, and says to the friends, Job's friends, you have not spoken truth about me. So if you see Psalm 91 like Job's friends, you're wrong. You're wrong. One more thing that puts all of this into context is this. Satan wants you to understand Psalm 91 this way. Now, we don't talk a lot about the devil here, but let me, let's, interesting quote by Shakespeare in The Merchant of Venice. Shakespeare writes, the devil can cite scripture for his purpose. Interesting. Because I find in, there is one place in the New Testament that Satan quotes scripture. And the scripture that Satan quotes is none other than Psalm 91. Let's take a look at this in Luke chapter 4. Satan's trying to tempt Jesus and derail him. And he quotes Psalm 91, verses 11 and 12. In verse 9 of Luke chapter 4, the devil led Jesus to Jerusalem and had him stand on the highest point of the temple. If you are the Son of God, he said, throw yourself down from here, for it is written, he will command his angels concerning you to guard you carefully. They will lift you up in their hands so that you will not strike your foot against a stone. And Jesus answered, It is said, Do not put the Lord your God to the test. So Satan, the devil himself, is telling Jesus, If God won't protect you, he's not being true to his word. That's Satan himself is saying that. You see, Satan, the devil is so strategic and he's cunning, and he's active in our world. Satan knows that if you believe the idea, this idea that if you trust in God, nothing bad will ever happen to you, it means that you will be deeply disappointed, and you will most likely pull away from God if you believe that. Some will renounce their faith in this loving God, and, and you'll never come to know this powerful promise that is written about here in Psalm 91. One more Bible story that puts Psalm 91 into context is the story of Joseph. Now, a couple weeks ago, Pastor Ron just mentioned the story of Joseph, but the story of Joseph helps us understand Psalm 91. The story goes like this. A man named Jacob had a group of sons and because of his own dysfunctional family of origin, Jacob favors one of his sons over all of the other sons. And that son is named Joseph. And this is poison to a family. If you've ever had that in your own family of origin, if you've ever seen that in a family, it's poison to a family when someone favors another. And by the time Joseph is a teenager, he's a spoiled brat. 
He's arrogant and he's privileged. And the brothers, the brothers are all becoming murderously angry and bitter towards Joseph. The brothers sell Joseph into slavery in Egypt. And in Egypt, Joseph gets accused falsely and he ends up in prison. And for decades, everything goes wrong in Joseph's life. God never comes through. And there are no signs of God and there is no relief and there are no answers for Joseph. But in the end of Joseph's story, we see that if none of the violence happened, if none of the lies, if none of the false accusations, if none of the family conflict happened, Joseph would have never become a great man. The brothers would have never experienced redemption. Thousands of people would have died or suffered in the famine. Joseph was protected by his own arrogance. He was protected by his father's mistreatment. He was protected by his brother's anger. And the people were protected from starvation by God's plan for Joseph's life, which included hardship, and included violence, included betrayal and false accusations and lies and injustice. And Joseph, at, at the end of Joseph's story, it's that famous verse in Genesis chapter 50, verse 20, Joseph says to his brothers, you intended to harm me, but God intended it for good to accomplish what is now being done, the saving of many lives. There is in the New Testament, an elaboration of the truth of Joseph's story, and also a very famous verse in Romans chapter 8, verse 28. In the New King James Version, it says, And we know that all things work together for good to those who love God, to those who are called according to his purpose. Now, this is not just something that you can write on a, a, a silkscreen t-shirt or a coffee mug or a, a poster. This is not something that you just drop on Instagram and you can see on your Facebook page. This is not just a cliche. This is the word of God. It says all things work together. That word together is so critical here. There is nothing cliche about this. Bad things are bad things. They're terrible. And God didn't create a world with evil and violence and murder and lies. It's the result of our own sin that these bad things went forward. All things work together for good. It's because God's power comes to bear on evil, even the evil things of the world and turns them into his purpose and his plan and his good. The last point, just to put Psalm 91 in context, just so that we clearly understand what's going on here, let's take a look at the Gospel of Luke in, in chapter 21. Jesus here is laying down some real talk to his disciples. And he's telling them, I'm going to be gone soon, and so I just want you to know, this is the reality of what it's going to be like. He says, after I'm gone, in verse 16, you will be delivered up even by parents and brothers and relatives and friends, and some of you they will put to death. And so the closest people in your life, your best friends, your relatives, your brother, your family, all these people, you'll be delivered up to them. And you will be hated by all for my name's sake. He's re- it's real stuff, Jesus is telling his disciples. After I'm gone, this is going to happen. But and then in verse 18 he says, but not a hair of your head will perish. How can you say all of these things are going to happen, but a 
this is the, not even a hair on your head will, 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 will perish. And then he says this curious statement in verse 19. By your endurance, you will gain your lives. What is Jesus saying here? Jesus is saying bad things will happen, but not a hair on your head will be lost. He says, by your endurance, if you're patient in suffering, he's saying here. Some of your Bibles will will use the word patience here. By your endurance, you're going to gain your lives. Your life is going is to, is there's going to be a gain there. But if you endure suffering, you call yourself a Christian and a Jesus follower. But if you love someone or something more than God, that person or that thing, it possesses your life. It, it, it owns your life. If you love someone or something more than God, that thing owns your life. If it's your career, if your career takes priority over all things, and you somehow justify it like, well, if daddy doesn't work hard and long, and you never get to live in this beautiful home, and we can't take exotic vacations, and you know, all of that, you can do whatever you want. But if your career takes priority over all things, your career owns your life. And if you lose your job ever, or if you're having problems in, in getting a job, um, you don't gain your life at all. Your, your life is the pits. And how about this? If, if you love your family more than God, if you love your family, and it's so, uh, it's, it's almost the whole, the whole family worship thing is such a, um, people are admired for worshiping their families. If your family takes priority over all things, your family owns your soul. And if you lose your family, or if there is a problem in your family, or if there's conflict in your family, you, you don't gain your life by that. It owns your life. and Because you, you, whatever you have before God, your career, your family, what, whatever it is, your bank account, whatever it is, you think about it all the time. You obsess on it. And when it's not right, you're not right. And when it's going good, oh, you're in the best mood. You look so good. Life is so good because whatever is owning your life is doing good. But as soon as it turns, you turn. And as, but as you experience hardship and tough times and suffering, if you rest in Jesus Christ and come under the shelter of his wings, you will allow God to gain your life and you'll experience his peace. You must trust God in your trouble in order to experience his peace, not trust God that he will prevent trouble from happening in your life. So how do we understand this psalm here? Is God really saying he's going to protect us? Well, the, we, we have seen that there is a promise of peace and that we understand clear a context of this, this promise of peace. And the third thing we can do to understand uh, this psalm, number three, is the clarity of the promise. Let's, let's close this song as God is speaking very directly and very clearly to the reader of this song. 
Verse 14, because he loves me, says the Lord, I will rescue him. I will protect him, for he acknowledges my name. He will call on me, and I will answer him. He will, I will be with him in trouble. I will deliver him and honor him. With long life, I will satisfy him and show him my salvation. Now, take your pen or write it down. Do whatever you need to do. But the, the one sentence, the one phrase here in verse 15 is telling of this whole psalm. It's in verse 15, God says, I will be with him, I will be with her in trouble. Well, wait a minute, God, I thought for 13 verses you said that you would protect me, right? That that no trouble, no harm would befall me. So what is this I'll be with you in trouble thing? Well, we understand this because we got the greater context here. There's two doctrines that make this clear in, in, in Psalm 91. The first doctrine is called the doctrine of incarnation. And God gave us complete fulfillment in his son Jesus Christ, who became a human being, who was born in a manger, who became a person who experienced betrayal and injustice and lies and imprisonment. He was brutally beaten. He died a physical death. In the immortal God, he became mortal. The invulnerable God, he became vulnerable. In the, he voluntarily went to the cross for us. And when bad things happen to us, we know that Jesus understands what is happening because he experienced the same. Many years ago, I, uh, I was a church planter. And church planting is, is, is um, it's hard work. It's I'm not, not saying that any, any other ministry isn't harder or less hard or anything, but I, I know firsthand, church planting, it's just dirty work. It's hard. It's, it's, it, it, uh, it's, it's painful. And in the first part of my ministry, we, we were just scratching. We were just, uh, we were, every week, we were just thankful. Maybe someone brought their dog to church, and we were just thankful. Another, you know, someone breathing. You know, something else happening, and, and, and we were just excited, but it was just hard work. And I remember going to a, a training event with a, a pastor and a church planter, and, and, and I really respected him. And Bill Heibel said, he was talking about six things that, are, that a church planter experiences, and number four, I'll never forget it, he was, he was talking to a group of hundreds of church planters there, and he said, one of the things that's going to happen to you is that you will lose your best friend. And it just happened to me. You know, all my buddies were together. We're going to go do something good for Jesus. We're going to win people of Jesus Christ. We're going to plant this church. And I had some of my best friends with me. And uh, just this one day, he said, I got to talk with you. And I said, okay. And I can sense already he was pulling away from me and the church. And he said, um, we're not, we don't agree with what's going on here. And uh, we're, we're moving on. I thought I was going to die. I, I wanted to quit right then. I just, I, I, I thought, I can't do this. If, if you're not going to be with I told him. I, if you're not going to be with me, I, I can't do this anymore. But but I did, and um, a few years later, um, a mentor of mine, a man who was discipling me, 
he was asking me some stuff, and, and he noticed that something wasn't right in me. And, and after years, finally, it, I told him this deep hurt that I had, this deep what I felt like was a betrayal in my life. And it just felt good just to get it out. I don't know if you ever experienced that. There's a lot of tears and a lot of, you know. And I remember his words, my, this man who was discipling me, he said, that Jesus knows your pain. He says, you're in good company. And, you know, I, I knew that, but to have someone say that to me at that moment, Jesus is not distant. He experienced every point of trouble and pain and hardship and betrayal in your life. And so we can read Psalm 91 and say, um, we're, we're in good company here. The doctrine of incarnation is so important for us to understand this. The second doctrine is the doctrine of substitution, and we're going to end with this here. And, and uh, remember the metaphor of the mother bird conveys protection? I mean, it's very vivid, the feathers and the wings. It conveys protection, it conveys tenderness, and it also conveys this, and I really want you to get this. It conveys substitution, and that's the doctrine. This is the doctrine of incarnation. We just talked about it, and the doctrine of substitution. The mother bird spreads her wings to protect her young, and we, we see that in our minds, and, and we understand that. And, and so when it rains, the mother bird spreads her wings over her young, and the mother bird gets wet, and the, the young, the baby birds, don't right? It's substitution. When there's sun and it gets too hot, the mother bird puts her wings around the, her young in the nest, and she gets hot. The, 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 the chicks don't get hot. When there are predators that want to eat the baby birds, the mother bird stands with her wings this way, and she gets assaulted. She is the substitute. The mother bird puts herself at risk in between to protect her young as a substitution. And there is a place in Scripture that Jesus identifies with this same metaphor that we're talking about of the mother bird. In Luke chapter 13, Jesus is approaching Jerusalem, and he says, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, you who kill the prophets and stone those, who, those sent to you, how often I have longed to gather your children together as a hen gathers her chicks under her wings, and you were not willing. Jesus identifies with this. Here Jesus is talking about the fact that Jerusalem will be judged for her sin and her wrongdoing. And he is saying here to Jerusalem, if you believed in me, I could be your protection. And well, protection from what? From judgment. The judgment of sin. Jesus is saying to Jerusalem, I wish you would believe in me. And I will be the punishment of sins for you. I long to be your substitute. And when Jesus went to the cross, he looked down at people betraying him. And he looked down at people mocking him. And people who, were, who have abandoned him. And people who were denying him. In the greatest action of love that the world has ever experienced he stayed on the cross and he gave his life as a substitute for us. 
and he took our penalty. 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 21. God made him, Jesus, who had no sin, to be sin for us, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. I think this is a wonderful place to end our sermon and to continue in our worship as we remember Jesus in the Lord's Supper. Let's pray together. Dear Father, how thankful we are for your word this morning. Father, we are thankful that, that you know our plight. You, you know us inside and out. You know the harm that we have suffered. You know the, the pain in our lives. You have also uh, witnessed and been a part of all the victories in our life. Thank you for turning those troubles by your power into, into wonderful opportunities of victory and of growth. Father, we look to you and we're thankful that you sent your son Jesus Christ, the incarnation for us. And Jesus, how thankful we are that you went to the cross for us in our place, our substitution, and that today we remember you in the Lord's Supper. In Jesus' name, amen.